found on page 1175 in the Church Bibles, from the letter of Paul to the Ephesians, chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The second reading is from John chapter 17, as found on page 1085 of your Bibles. John chapter 17, verse 24. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them, and that I myself may be in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Mike has already prayed for us, so I'll start straight off by saying I remember my 21st birthday as though it were yesterday. It was last week, but that's neither here nor there. My father greeted me as I came downstairs and congratulated me on coming of age. And he said, I'm not going to do to you what my father did to me on my 21st. I had an instant flashback to my grandpa. So I checked with my cousin last weekend, who knew him better than I, and said, what were your memories of Grandpa Bennett? She said, he was a miserable old man. Which rather confirmed my instant memory of him, that he was rather a stern, austere, Victorian gentleman. But on my father's 21st, 
he handed a document to my father and said, this is what I have spent on you for the last 21 years. <laughs> Stan, this is what you've cost me to bring you up to this moment. Now, Charles and Emily, I'm sure that uh, you won't be making a list of all that uh, you've spent on Lucy uh, so far, indeed, in the future, until she comes of age, whether that's 18 or whatever our politicians decide. She'll be loved and treasured, whatever the financial cost. Though I have to say, having bought a child, a baby seat yesterday for a future grandson due next month, uh, it cost more than a season ticket for Pompey. <laughs> I'll leave you to guess which I think is more valuable. <laughs> well, how do we view God? Is he a grumpy old man, stingy and mean, a killjoy doing his best to stop us enjoying life to the full? Or are we those who've experienced God as a God of love and a loving father. We've been thinking about love in, in the songs today. If we experience something of the love of God, then according to Paul, we're spiritual millionaires. In the reading just earlier, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I love that phrase, out of his glorious riches. God has so much to give us, and he gives ungrudgingly. There's no sense of mean-mindedness or penny-pinching on God's part towards those who are his children by faith, but rather he lavishes his spiritual gifts on us. Why? That you and I might be rooted and grounded in his love and come to the full measure of the fullness of God. We know that Paul, as Saul, was brought up as a strict and uh, learned Jew who believed that conformity to the law of God was the only way to, go, to gain God's favour. Then he had that dramatic experience on the Damascus Road when Jesus met him. And he came to understand the warmth and the love of God, and so he could write eloquently about it from first-hand experience, that you may be rooted and grounded in God's love as he was. Christians are spiritual millionaires. If you don't know that, that's the truth that Paul's conveying to us. You may have seen the headline this week. In the States, a woman won a huge sum of money on the lottery. The headline was something along the lines of, woman has a life-changing experience. It certainly has been because the lottery company required her to publicly acknowledge this huge check. She's been inundated with begging letters and threats and now has a police car parked on her front drive. Two years ago, a man who won another lottery was killed by someone trying to get money from him. We as spiritual millionaires, on the other hand, are rooted and established in God's love and filled with all the fullness of God. What more could we want from our Heavenly Father? And Paul's life-changing experience came as he grasped the fact that God loved him as his Heavenly Father, set him free from sin and guilt, and he was a murderer by implication. 
and God set him free from that guilt. And Paul was able to pray later that we might come to know the fullness of God's love. And Paul's experience of God's love and our experience is entirely in keeping with a relationship that existed within the Godhead between the Father and the Son, even before the world began, as we see in John chapter 17, verse 24. For those of you who've not been here during the summer, we've been looking at John 17, the high priestly prayer of Jesus, the subject of a sermon series. But in the verses that were just read to us by Ruth, Jesus summarizes and makes a pledge rather than making a specific prayer. He says, Father, righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. There's bad news there, because the world, as John understands it, is everyone opposed to the truth of God, and therefore ignorant, because they fail to recognize that Jesus was revealing God to them in human form. It's a statement of the situation before the crucifixion, a world of unbelief. But Jesus came, he died, rose again, ascended to be with the Father in heaven. But people still reject the truth that he came to reveal, even today. And so it's a post-crucifixion situation too, because the world is a world of unbelief. But now there's some good news because Jesus says in that wonderful pledge in verse 26, I've made you known to them. That's the first disciples whom we're told Jesus loved and he loved the fact that they responded to him in faith as well as we have done by faith today. I've made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. So despite the unbelief of the world at Jesus' time and in our day, the revelation of God continues and Jesus affirms that his mission is to make God known. How is that mission made known? It is through us. His desire is that those who don't yet know his love may come to believe and trust in him. That's the whole point of his ministry. He's referring on one level to his imminent death on the cross, to his resurrection, which is the climax of his revelation of the Father and shows most clearly the extent of his love for us. On another another level, he's speaking of his continued presence among believers in the world. His continuing love is being made known through the outpouring and outworking of the Holy Spirit since the ascension and since the day of Pentecost in our lives today throughout 2,000 years of history. The sons coming into the world brought, into, uh, brought the presence of God's love and his coming into our lives brings his love into our lives. So here's the challenge. God desires that we might be like him revealing his love in the world. We become like him when we know him and trust him through the word of God, through the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. We become like him 
as our lives are changed through the ongoing process of sanctification that John spoke about earlier in the summer, meaning that we are living in the world, but not of the world, living as Christians in a counter-culture situation. And as we work out our salvation with the Lord, the Holy Spirit fills us with his fruits and his gifts as we ask him. The first fruit of the Spirit is love. We become like him as we become sanctified, set apart by God. We also become like him in the mission of Jesus as we make known the good news of Jesus. Paul spoke to the Corinthians. He says, therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. A new congregation is soon to be planted at St. Margaret's, and it's, it's an exciting and daunting challenge, humanly speaking. But in doing that, it's fulfilling Jesus' pledge that his work goes on, sharing God's love with that community around St. Margaret's. Outreach to unbelievers in the community is rooted in the community of believers as a whole, rather than being the isolated enterprise of a few individuals who have the gift of evangelism. As people of a community feel loved and cared for, they're drawn closer to an understanding of God's love in a post-Christian society, which accentuates the subjective nature of knowledge and truth. I read an obituary of Cardinal Cormac Murphy O'Connor, the Archbishop, former Archbishop of Westminster, who died this week. He wrote a book about faith in the nation and took on Tony Blair's secularist policies, but unfortunately lost. And he said this, religious belief of any kind, he said, tends to be treated more as a private eccentricity than as the central and formative element of British society that it is. In the name of tolerance, it seems to me that tolerance is being abolished, he said. A private eccentricity, merely a subjective private experience, and therefore by implication of no value in the wider society, other than for eccentric individuals who follow a religion. I couldn't help thinking of uh, Paul's phrase there about being fools for Christ's sake. The world regards us as fools for believing in God, a God who loved the world so much that he gave his son. In the present climate, it's very difficult to reason someone into the kingdom of God merely by rational argument. Rather, the unbeliever must first be drawn into a community of believers where he or she can experience unified and loving relationships among Christians and be nurtured into maturity, where they see people loving God and worshiping him and being committed to his service. And by this, Jesus said, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. So we become like him in mission and we become like him as we experience the love of God in our hostile world. As Christians, we know that we're affirmed, accepted, set free, forgiven by God, 
and the love of God is poured out into our hearts, giving us perseverance to live out our lives to his glory in the hope of that future glory that Adam spoke about last week, knowing that nothing can separate us from his love. The New Testament tells us of Jesus' love for his church, his love for each individual member, as being like that of a love between a husband for his bride. And Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. The love of a husband for his wife is a sacrificial love, not a slavish obedience of the wife to the husband, as opponents of the institution of marriage would have us believe Paul is saying. But that human love is a pale reflection of God's love revealed through the cross and resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 13, that famous passage read at many weddings and even funerals too, Paul says, now we see a poor reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. When Paul spoke of a mirror, we shouldn't think of modern mirrors, but most probably of a piece of tarnished sheet metal, not too flat, which would have given a very distorted reflection as people looked at it. And Jesus wants us to have the knowledge of the reality of God's love, not a distorted view. The Lord Jesus wants us to develop a passionate desire and love for God. As the deer pants for the streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O Lord. My soul thirsts for God. Is that true of us? True of us that we have a passion for the God who loves us. Jesus wants us to have that passionate love, like the love that exists between the Father and the Son, as it might be in us. So the Lord desires that we abandon our coldness and become more passionate in our love for him. And we impoverish our relationship and intimacy with him if we rule out passionate emotions but also we have a responsibility as Christians to show God's love in the world. We can be passionate in our love for Jesus, but if it's not shown in our care and concern for people, then we fail. As we abide in Christ, God promises to pour out his love through the Holy Spirit. And Jesus proved God's love for us on the cross, and we're able to love because he loves us. It's a contradiction to speak of knowing God without showing love, not only for God, but for others too. To live under the cross means loving even our enemies, overcoming evil with good, so that God can lead us into ways of recon reconciliation. If we receive God's sacrificial love, then we want to show others that same quality of love that we ourselves have received. So Christian love, therefore, goes beyond emotions or sentiment. It's practical, too. Someone defines sentiment as feeling without responsibility. That genuine love is a matter of the will, a choice that we make. And God chooses that we should love him and love others, too. 
like him, we choose to love and we can be loving towards people because we've the divine indweller, the Holy Spirit. We love with our minds and with our hearts too. One of the top 20 jokes in the Edinburgh Fringe this summer was this. I've given up asking rhetorical questions. What's the point? But rhetorical questions are a preacher's tool. And I make no apologies for asking questions today. There's a point to them. How do we respond to Jesus' prayer? We've listened to expositions throughout the summer. How should the concerns of Jesus in prayer impact on our prayer life? How do they challenge and change the way we see our own priorities and concerns in prayer? Let me just recap. Jesus prayed that his followers might be kept faithful. He prayed that we'd be protected from evil, that we might be made holy and show unity and love and enjoy the glory of heaven here and in the future while demonstrating God's love in the world. Those were his priorities, those were his concerns. When we turn to prayer, what do we pray about? My grandfather was a miserable old man, according to my cousin. God isn't miserable. God is a generous giver, and he loves us passionately and desires that we love him passionately in response and love others equally passionately. If we have any doubt about that, the sign of the cross was made on Lucy's head this morning to show God's love for her, but also that one day she will come to understand what sin is all about and need his forgiveness. And the empty cross remains as a symbol of God's costly love for us. Let's be thrilled by that love this morning and share it with others verbally and practically too. I'm going to use a prayer that I was given just this last month. Let's bow our heads to pray. O God of love, we ask you to give us love, love in our thinking, love in our speaking, love in our doing, and love in the hidden places of our souls, love of those with whom we find it hard to bear, and love of those who find it hard to bear with us, love of those with whom we work, and love of those with whom we take our ease, so that at length we may be worthy to dwell with you, who are eternal love, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.